Welcome to episode 1473 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hey. Meg is not here today because we are finishing our series where we talk about the story that we missed about each team in 2019. And so Sam started it. We figured Sam would finish it. But all three of us will be on the first episode next week. So Meg will be back soon. So a couple bits of banter before we finish what we're doing. First, wanted to mention an article that Ben Clemens wrote for Fangrass on Thursday because he sort of debunked something that I had kind of believed to be true of this offseason so far, which is that the teams that are signing the free agents or the good free agents and driving a lot of this activity are worse teams than usual, like more non-playoff teams or or bad teams. And so I thought this was a a positive sign. Okay, maybe the imbalance of the standings last season is correcting itself because these also ran teams are now suddenly more active. And I thought, well, maybe that explains why the free agent market has bounced back to the extent that it has. Maybe it's just that a bunch of teams were rebuilding and then suddenly they decided that they were rebuilt and they needed to sign some free agents to put the finishing touches on their rosters. Anyway, Ben thought this was the case too. He had that intuition, but he decided to examine it and turned out not really to hold up to his scrutiny at all. So he he looked at this in a few different ways. He just uh, scanned all the free agent signings from previous off seasons going back to 2002. And he looked to see if more of them were coming from non-playoff teams or teams below a certain winning percentage or even teams that were kind of like on the cusp of contention, like 75 to 85 win teams showed nothing, showed no increase in, in the percentage of free agents going to those teams this year. And then he also looked not just all free agents, but good free agents to see if, well, maybe it's the high profile players are going to those teams. And no, that's uh, that's really not true either. So I think that I was just kind of extrapolating from, you know, Rendon going to the Angels and Bumgarner going to the Diamondbacks and Grandal going to the White Sox and trying to convince myself that, okay, maybe this is something new and, and positive, but it's not actually unusual, at least so far, from the typical offseason pattern because uh, pretty much every offseason there are free agents who, who go to bad teams and non-playoff teams. That's like kind of how free agency is often supposed to work, that if you were not a great team, then you try to make yourself better by spending, and that happens every year. So thanks to Ben for correcting that record. Huh. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it, though. No, I still don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know. Like, last year, uh, the Padres signed Manny Machado, right? Uh, the year before that, they signed Derek Cosmer. That was weird just for the Padres to sign anyone notable. But but I think if we went back, we could find examples of this every offseason. So. Yeah. So kudos to Ben for for doing the legwork and yeah. examining that. Good to know. We would have yeah. said that. We, how many times would we have <laughs> said that between now and 
and like May at least, like yeah. 13. I was tentatively planning to write about it at some point. And so maybe if I had written about it, I would have come to the same conclusion that, that Ben had. And then I would have stopped saying it. But before that point, yeah, I probably would have said it like five or six more times. <laughs> so thanks to Ben. But uh, that makes this offseason more of a mystery even. So I still don't know exactly what it is that has caused the market to recover to this extent. But anyway, the other article I wanted to shout out quickly is uh, Ken Rosenthal wrote for The Athletic about Wade Miley. So Wade Miley just signed with the Reds a two-year, $15 million deal. And Wade Miley just kind of collapsed at the end of last season. September, he was just terrible. He was uh, not left off of, of the first postseason roster, but didn't really have a prominent role and then was left off subsequent postseason rosters. And he pitched his way off of those rosters because he was uh, really terrible. So Ken writes that it turns out that Wade Miley was pitch tipping that uh, teams were picking up on pitch tipping. So this is an inversion of the usual Astros story. This is not Astros picking up on another team's pitchers pitch tipping. It is an Astros pitcher tipping his pitches. And as always, I am left with as many questions as, as answers when I read about pitch tipping. The interesting thing about this is that Miley says like he was looking for whether he was tipping and the Astros were trying to see whether he was tipping and you would think that the Astros if they're supposedly so adept at, at picking up on pitch tipping and that's not just a, a residue of some sign stealing that they're doing that they would be able to detect this like maybe they're using the cameras and machine learning or, or whatever to pick up on pitch tipping but evidently the Astros couldn't figure out what he was doing and then so he says I couldn't get an out I couldn't get anybody to swing and miss at anything he watched video he consulted with Astros officials but he had no idea what was wrong until a former teammate sent him a text message after his final regular season start check your glove <laughs> and that's it that's the tip that uh that cleared all this up check your glove like oh well he left a note in his glove saying you're tipping your pitches <laughs> right. i don't know like maybe there was more to the text message and that's just how it started but check your glove did he not check his glove before isn't that like one of the first what things the, yeah that's he what check? he said that he looked of course he'd check your glove <laughs> so anyway I, I guess this somehow broke it wide open and uh it says miley thought he had checked everything <laughs> except the glove <laughs> except the glove so anyway so here's the thing that so this article quotes Brent Strom the Astros pitching coach and and Strom acknowledges that uh, that maybe Miley was pitch tipping but he and he says you know it had an impact even a, a huge impact but Strom also noted two other reasons for Miley's decline in September Strom said Miley started pushing his changeup losing effectiveness with the pitch by focusing more on location than arm speed Miley also became too reliant on his cutter the pitch that helped revitalize his career right-handed hitters started taking the cutter to the opposite field and employing that approach helped them stay on Miley's changeup and negate that pitch Strom wanted Miley to throw more four-seam fastballs up in the zone etc etc so Strom isn't saying it wasn't pitch tipping but he's also saying it's this other stuff maybe so here's the thing and I'll I'll send you this article because there's a, a screenshot of Miley supposedly tipping his pitches with his glove and this is not the first time that I've read an article about pitch tipping where like we're supposed to see the the smoking gun image that reveals the pitch tipping and I still can't really see it so it's like this big graphic tipping pitches side by side it shows Miley in the same position one right. side is before he throws the curve and the change the other side is before he throws the fastball cutter 
And like at first glance, it looks identical to me. Now, there are red lines added to the image between his glove and his shoulder to show the distance at which he's holding the glove. And I guess the, the red line is bigger on the cutter, like he's holding the glove farther away. But it's like, it's minuscule. It's like, what is that? An inch? Two inches? Like, And that's in one frame. That's like, like the frame that they chose to, to represent. Right. And so you're, if you're s- sort of rocking at all, like even just an, an inch. Yeah. And... <laughs> you can't I mean, tell, like, it genuinely does look like, like if you did this as a highlight and said there like two pictures side by side find the differences. Yeah. <laughs> there like the wrinkle in the jersey is the same. <laughs> Check the, the glove. The, Check the, the glove. The little groove in the forearm muscle is the same. The <laughs> angle of him his yeah. head looking at the runner is exactly the same. The the line that goes down his pants <laughs> is at the exact same angle. It's all identical. Yeah. And then there's an inch of, of space <laughs> yeah this nothing. is incredible and everybody like this is he, just to be clear what we're talking about with wade miley two starts one third of an inning 12 runs <laughs> yeah <laughs> from the club an inch farther away like i know major league hitters are uh are really good at picking up on patterns and they have sharp eyes and, and all of that but you cannot tell me that this is why Wade Miley went from above average starting pitcher to can't get an out, can't get a swing and miss. I mean, come on. This is, and it kind of cheats too. If you look at the image, the red line on the fastball cutter side actually goes into his shoulder a little more, which makes it look longer, but it's not actually that the glove is farther away. It's just that the line extends deeper into his shoulder. So it's overlapping his shoulder, not actually marking the distance from the edge of it. I can't believe this. First of all, like you'd think the Astros wouldn't want this to be the narrative about Wade Miley because this is essentially saying that if you know what pitch is coming, you are dominant. You you will never swing and miss. So that's probably not the story the Astros want out there these days. Granted, maybe like pitch tipping, natural pitch tipping could be less distracting to a hitter, I guess, than than a garbage can. But still, like if, if he's selling the story here that uh, he was so terrible because hitters knew what pitch was coming, that's, uh, you know, that doesn't reflect well on the 2017 Astros. Not that Miley was on that team. Anyway, so yeah, I... I have a hard time believing this was that huge a contributor. And the thing is here, I kind of wonder whether this is just something that he sort of cooked up with his agent. Because, to sell the Reds. Yes, exactly. Most uh, Much of this article is about how pitch tipping became part of the selling point for Miley's free agency to explain why he was bad in September. And so Miley says like he gave his agent the go ahead to be like, yep, just, just tell them, tell them I was pitch tipping. You can, you can tell them I'm not embarrassed. (laughs) And I kind of wonder like, is it actually that uh, this was really happening or did he want that to be? the story of the season because uh, then another team might think oh well this was not the real Wade Miley this was Wade Miley with his glove one inch farther away so Miley uh, is not one for excuses it says he allowed his agent Tom O'Connell to inform clubs during free agency that he had been tipping but he had not been willing to publicly discuss it before this Uh, he reluctant to pin all of his struggles on the problem okay 
But this image, I think, was one that O'Connell prepared for teams. This was part of the selling point. So O'Connell, so it says, once he reached free agency, he knew he had to come clean, revealed to clubs he had been tipping, explained why he performed so poorly in September. He told his agent O'Connell to do what you have to do. O'Connell found photographs and video that clearly demonstrated Miley's problem. This does not seem to be one of them, but O'Connell says, I was very candid with clubs. I just said, look, clearly September was an aberration. I showed them the video. I showed them the photos. I made them at ease, understanding that was a significant issue that led to the tough month. We looked at all the trackman data, all the stuff a lot of clubs look at. Everything was good, consistent the entire season. We were able to give that certain level of comfort to the clubs we were dealing with that the Wade Miley they saw from April to August was going to be the guy they get the next couple of years. So this was maybe, if anything, a brilliant marketing strategy by Miley and O'Connell to say, oh, no, that wasn't the real Wade Miley. This was uh, pitch tipping all the way. Huh. Wow. Yeah. So many. Qu- everyone. I would. Li- I would listen to a well done podcast on pitch tipping. That yeah. it was just nothing but pitch tipping. Every yep. every story pitch tipping story. <laughs> yep. It'd be like uh, the first episode of uh, the first season of Serial too, because you would yeah. come away with no answers. Yep. <laughs> All right, let's resume our exercise from the previous two episodes. We've been counting down all 30 teams, one story we missed about each team's season in 2019. We've done the first 20 teams in our last two episodes, and today we're going to do the last 10. So we left off last time with Cleveland, and that means that it's time to talk about the Mariners. So... Didn't talk about the Mariners a ton this year, at least not after their surprisingly hot start. I think maybe the most salient thing about the Mariners this year was how many Mariners there were. So that was the suggestion that some people had. The Mariners used 67 players this season, and that blew by the Major League record, which was 64 before the season. That was set by the 2014 Rangers, who they had a ton of injuries that year, and they used a lot of players. The Mariners didn't have a historic injury here, but they still used a ton of players. And in baseball, it's uh, generally not a good thing to use a ton of players. It's not the team that, that uses the most players wins. Generally, the team that uses the most players loses a lot, as the Mariners did. So uh, this has kind of happened before. Like, Didn't the Mariners set a, a record for most pitchers used in 2018? Maybe it was. I think they used like 40 pitchers or something. So this time, they uh, they used a lot of players on both sides of the ball. And... You'd figure it's it's easier to do that these days because bullpens are bigger and teams sort of shuffle bullpen guys on and off the roster, or at least they have. Maybe that will change a little with some of the, the rule changes for minor league options coming in 2020, but... Mariners really exemplified that trend, which is probably not a great one for spectators because Mariners fans didn't have a lot of reasons to watch the team this year. But when they did watch the team, they probably had to keep reminding themselves who all of these people were. You don't think it was fun? I, 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 okay. I feel like we've been having a slightly different version of this conversation every so often for the last you know few months. I agree that you want your starting lineup 
and you want your top couple pitchers and your closer to be people you recognize, you need to have a base of players you recognize in the lineup. You don't want every game to be the seventh inning of the spring training uh, of mm-hmm. spring training games. But if you're talking about the very bottom of the roster, the 25th, 24th, 23rd, do you think that there's not some benefit to having novelty? And I mean, <laughs> after a certain amount of time, you kind of know that Mac Williamson is not that exciting. Like you've learned <laughs> Mac Williamson. And now if it's Donnie Walton instead, then isn't that kind of like, oh, well, maybe Donnie Walton's the guy. I mean, I remember growing up and thinking that like any number of very, very short-lived major leaguers were exciting because sometime in their first like eight games on on my team, they had a big hit. And I remember Steve Scarsoni very well for <laughs> basically like one big hit and one good weekend. And so Steve Scarsoni, career as a giant. I guess he ended up hanging on four years as a giant. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. Steve, Steve <laughs> ne- never a good idea to bring Steve Scarsoni into the conversation. You're not even sure what point you're, you're going to end up landing on. But I don't know. I, I could see a case for novelty being to making it a little more interesting. I mean, I, certainly if you're, this is not the perspective that the average fan has, but if you're the beat writer and the 25th spot, is constantly someone new. That's great because you always right. have your your B story for that day. Like you can go interview that player and ask like, "What what'd you buy with your signing bonus?" <laughs> and and all you know those sorts of questions. Yeah. So that's always good. And I don't know. It seems like maybe that would somewhat be the experience that fans would have too. They also want to know what what the players <laughs> spent their signing bonus on. Mm-hmm. And then they they're gonna. I don't. It, it's tricky with the the Mariners though because I don't know if you had enough of a core. Of yeah. players there that you were interested in even seeing the three four fives i always have a, in mind i want to do an, an article on the uh maybe the least exciting do up uh batters like you know how they show the <laughs> do up batters at the end of one half inning uh, so so i want to do an article on the least exciting do ups in uh, over the course of a season and i feel like with the mariners it, it could be like two-thirds of their innings had a, an yeah. unexciting do up Right. I mean, I guess you could say that if your team is going to be bad anyway, you might as well meet some new people. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's not a great stat to lead the league in, but it's maybe better than being third. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> I find it kind of alienating as a, a follower of the sport. I think the the fact that if I look at box scores now, there are so many names I don't know, which uh, maybe, I mean, my attention is slightly divided, I guess, because I'm, I'm covering other things at the ringer. But it's not just that. It's that there are just many more names in baseball in a major league season in a given year. And there's kind of a comforting familiarity when you look at box scores, you you look at news and you know every name. It's like, okay, I've, I'm following this, this TV show and I know the whole cast and uh, I can maybe even picture them or tell you a fact about them. And now I just... Whenever I look at a box score, there are names I don't know to the point that I don't even think like, oh, I better go look that guy up so I can know something about him. It's it's past that point. I've given up on, mm. on knowing anything. So it, mm-hmm. it used to be even at BP when I was at BP and, and trying to pay as close attention to every roster as I possibly could. There would always be like the back of the bullpen in a, an NL West team that was bad that 
the games were on late and I, I didn't watch all that much of them. There would always be some players I didn't know, but now it's every team. There are players I don't know, and, and you just kind of have to accept that, which maybe is not so great as a follower of the sport. If you're a follower of a specific team, yes, at least you're you're getting fresh faces and new stories and anecdotes about players that you haven't heard on a dozen other broadcasts that year. I'm very sympathetic to this, so I, I don't I I don't want to argue against it if if you're right, and I'm not sure that you're not right. A couple of counterpoints, though. One is that you're comparing your your experience to when you were editing BP, and you are never in better shape than when you're <laughs> editing BP. I mean, right. you know, yeah. the the you're having to edit prospect stuff every day. You're having to edit every transaction analysis. Mm-hmm. You're editing so much that you get to know. You really know every player in a way that you don't when you're just writing about it, let alone mm-hmm. uh, just a fan of it. And it's just, like there are, I don't know how many names the average baseball fan can hold in their head at once. My guess is it's not more than, say, 400 or so. And the top 400 players in the world are still all there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're surrounded by, instead of 500 other names, now 600 other names. But I don't know how many of those other 500 you were really learning anyway. A yeah. bigger, It seems that a bigger challenge is that in the 30-team era, then there's a lot more names, obviously. So in the sense that there's more teams, uh, you're not seeing the same teams as much. And also, there are now a lot more than 400 players in the league. In the olden days, there were actually only 400 players in the league mm-hmm. when there were 16 teams and so i like i say i'm i'm sympathetic to the to the to the human need that you're describing i'm not and i'm just not convinced that the the problem is quite so i don't know recent as we're treating it mm-hmm. nor that it's in any way desirable to solve it given the league that we have however uh, and i will also make this last counter argument which is that the if i'm doing the query correctly i believe that the giants in 2019 set the national league record for players appearing with 64 at least that they're at least that's close to an accurate statement <laughs> and in the last episode or maybe the one before when we talked about the giants season you rattled off a bunch of the Giants who were new to the team this year, who mm-hmm. were part of Farhan Zaidi's you know, roster churn as he tried to find good players. And if you were to ask a Giants fan about what made this season good and memorable, I think that Giants fan would say that Donovan Solano and Alex Dickerson and mm-hmm. Stephen Vogt and Mike Estremski were big parts of that, the players that you named when you named the, yep. the surprising successes. And those are all the result of, of Farhan Zaidi playing with not just a 40-man roster, but like a 64-man roster across the season and, and bringing new players in and giving new players a chance to both be learned and also to thrive. So mm-hmm. don't know what exactly my point is here. <laughs> the Mariner season was exactly as you described it. <laughs> and... I guess along those lines, one of the best stories of the Mariners season was one of the last players to arrive, Kyle Lewis, who is not in that same class as the the free talent pickups that you just named, but he was Jerry Depoto's first draft pick as the Mariners GM. He was the, the 11th overall pick in the 2016 draft, and he had a serious knee injury, I believe, and then he had a couple years where he underperformed, and then he came back and sort of reestablished himself as a, a viable player this year. 
And then he showed up on September 10th and he went on a great run, which I, I think Meg and I mentioned at that point because he had one of those debuts where he was hitting a home run every other day and it was very exciting. And he finished with 18 games, 75 plate appearances, six homers. And uh, a 132 OPS plus, so that was a nice bright spot. Granted, he walked three times and struck out 29 times, and there were worrisome things about that too. But it was nice just that he got to the big leagues and and contributed at all, and was sort of a a breath of fresh air in the clubhouse and exciting energy and and all of that. And that was the, the product of a player who showed up at the last minute. So. Yes, sometimes, depending on the player, a new addition can certainly be exciting. But I, I think there is sort of a an anonymity that sets in when mm-hmm. it's just a, a rotating cast all year long. Two other things about the Mariners this year. One is that we didn't talk about, I don't think. One is that Marco Gonzalez is the pitcher with war disagreements this year. Mm. If you look at some sites... Marco Gonzalez was average, and if you look at some, he was uh, he was very very good, um, and so uh, he's an interesting pitcher going forward. Very low strikeout rate, and yet by some measures very effective, by others not. The other is that Tom Murphy wasn't quite Mitch Garver, but he was a lot like Mitch Garver in terms of a catcher who came out of nowhere, who was not seen as an offensive force, and who had an um, incredible season in somewhat part-time play. So Tom Murphy had 10 career home runs at that point, uh, at the beginning of, of this season. He, uh, he was a career 219, 271, 439 hitter in Coors Field as a Colorado Rocky, so playing half his games in Coors Field. Joined the Mariners, hit 18 homers in 75 games as a catcher, which is not not Mitch Garver pace, but is uh, is very good. I prorate that over a full season, and that's like 40 homers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in August, he hit 333 and slugged 804. So Tom Murphy was a, a story that we might have talked. If Tom Murphy had been an Atlanta Brave, we would have talked about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Orioles. Not a ton of great stories to, to talk about with the Orioles this year, but... Hanser Alberto, we never really talked about him, and he's kind of the the reverse of the Mike Yastrzemski because we talked about how the Giants just sort of plucked Mike Yastrzemski off the Orioles without giving up much. That was a, a March trade, and the same thing happened the other way. The Orioles took Hanser Alberto off of waivers from the Giants in March, and then he had himself a, a good season too and a strange one. So. He was in contention for the AL batting race until pretty late in the year, and he was kind of Tim Anderson light. He he had the same 2.9% walk rate, which is not great, but he managed to bat 305, playing a, a full season, qualifying for the batting title. That's not easy to do, and he was in the first percentile in exit velocity, the first percentile in hard hit percentage. The 18th percentile in expected weighted on base average, 20th percentile in expected slugging, but 88th percentile in expected batting average, which I don't know what to make of that exactly. Does that mean that he was just consistently putting balls in in the stat cast donut hole where you're, you're hitting it hard enough to get it over the infield, but not hard enough to be caught by outfielders essentially? And he kind of found that semi-sweet spot and kept putting balls there like it it seems like if you never hit the ball hard at all 
it should still be hard to have an expected batting average that's that high, which I guess, like, I mean, what was his, his BABIP must have been high. It wasn't even that high. It was a 318, 318 BABIP. So that's just what? a yeah, he strange only season. Struck out 50 times. Yeah, it, right. He put the ball in play a lot. But. Yeah, so he put the ball in play, and I guess you could do it by hitting if you almost never pop up and you almost never chop out. Uh-huh. Like if, if all of your launch angles are between like 2% and 17%, mm-hmm. you can probably do it if you don't hit the ball hard. It's just if you could if you could do that, you're like superhuman. <laughs> right. so that's that's the hard thing about baseball. It's harder to do that than to be strong. Yeah, I guess so. So he, yeah, he had a 6% infield fly ball rate, so that's low. And yeah, just weird. Like eight point three percent infield hit percentage. That's not extraordinarily high, I don't think. So that's just a weird season. So he was coming off three straight sub replacement level seasons in little playing time with the Rangers, and then he, I don't, I don't know. He was twenty six for for most of the season, I guess, and. That was uh, that. Was that. <laughs> so, strange season, probably tough to repeat. Oh, actually, so, wow, all right, so his transaction history is, is actually pretty interesting. So, in November, November 2018, he was selected by the Yankees off waivers from the Rangers. Then in January 2019, he was selected off waivers by the Orioles from the Yankees. Then the Giants took him off waivers from the Orioles in February, and then the Orioles took him back off waivers from the Giants in March. So he went through like a little mini Oliver Drake saga there just in the few months before spring training, or I guess he must have already reported to Giants spring training probably by the time the Orioles took him, but he didn't know where he was going to be playing there. When we talk about the Oliver Drake sagas of the sport, there's I think there's always an assumption that there's a lot of effort for not much reward there that like part of what it makes it feel a little bit absurd and funny and also a little bit cruel is that these are players that we expect even if they do finally latch on to just be holding on by their fingertips even in that situation and maybe be maybe be like two runs better than replacement level and and yet we have here two stories Alberto and Drake of players who were both very good for their teams at the end mm-hmm. of these sagas and making the teams that let them go look kind of dumb uh, more mm-hmm. than the whole process. So yeah, like Alberto, you know, uh, like basically all-star level player this year. Yeah, Pretty close. Kinda. And well, he was like a two-win player, but <laughs> Well, he was three uh, three at, oh, at three baseball, at baseball reference. reference. Okay. And uh-huh. uh and then, you know, Drake if uh Drake was in if if Drake were a closer, he would have had 39 saves. So, mm-hmm. And as it was, he was pitching in leverage in the postseason and was a very good pitcher. So those were two va- valuable players. Those are median players on a, on a championship team. Or yeah, so. that's right. Yeah, and Oliver Drake got to spend the whole season with the Rays. Good for him. Hopefully, Hunter Alberto will find some stability too. I guess can, he did this year. Can we just uh, appreciate that uh, a player that you described as Tim Anderson light <laughs> hit yeah. 12 home runs this year. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> the player who had the first percentile exit velocity <laughs> yeah. hit 12 home runs this year. <laughs> that's true. Huh. I wonder if he like he hit 
his peak velocities. I wonder if his peak velocities were good and he just like hit a lot of balls poorly. But when he did get a hold of one, he hit it pretty hard. Or maybe it's just the ball and you can do that this year. I have an update on the Marco Gonzalez okay. conversation. Uh, so Gonzalez at Fangraphs, 3.7 war. At reference, 3.2 war. And at Prospectus, 0.0 war. And what's kind of interesting about that, and maybe I'll write about Marco Gonzalez now, is that I had a little thing going for a few years where I would look at the player whose wars most diverged across the three sites mm-hmm. and then write about why and what made them interesting and what it tells us about you know the modern age. And uh, and usually what you find, it, because reference is runs-based and the other two are more peripherals-based, uh, with different levels of uh, sophistication, usually you just get a very simple thing where a player has, you know, a high war on reference and a low war on the other two, or a high low war on reference and a high war on the other two. The other two kind of move in, in a lot of tandem. And so it's hard to write that story the next year about a different pitcher who's basically the same story. But with Gonzalez, the diversion is between prospectus and fan graphs. It's between all of them to some degree, but the extremes are fan graphs and, and perspectives. And I'm not sure how many pitchers there are where uh, there is, say, more than a war, a war and a half separating them, and the extremes are those two with reference in the middle. It's very rare that reference is in the middle. Okay. All right. Rangers are up next. We did not get a lot of Rangers suggestions, and the ones we did were mostly from people who want us to talk about Danny Santana who uh, I think we have mentioned at some point this Mm -hmm. season, but I I don't really remember specifics. So He was one of the most surprising home run totals when we were naming those for a uh while. Okay. Well, it was a a surprising season on the whole because Danny Santana was quite good for the Rangers. He started the season better than he finished it, I think, because I I remember his numbers looking considerably better than, than they do at the end of the year. But still pretty good he hit 283 324 534 and yes 28 home runs and that was after just a, a few really pretty terrible seasons like he he had a good rookie year with the twins in 2014 he got votes for rookie of the year that year and then after that it was just uh 2015 with the twins 46 ops plus 2016 with the twins 64 ops plus 2017 with the twins and the braves 55 ops plus 2018 with the braves 54 ops plus and some of these are small sample others are not that small so i'm gonna guess that if you set a a playing time minimum of oh i don't know 600 plate appearances or something from 2015 to 2018 Danny Santana must have been one of the worst hitters in baseball and certainly one of the worst non-catcher hitters in baseball. And then he came back and uh, he put together a a really strong season for the Rangers. And it it probably went under the radar a little bit just because Rangers had a few of those seasons. Like they had the Mike Miner season, they had the Lance Lynn season, they had the Hunter Pence season. And those all probably got more attention than Danny Santana did. But Given his previous uh, four seasons or so, for him to do what he did after signing as a, a free agent, and, and did he he got a minor league invite, I think, as did Hunter Pence, and so to do what he did after that was a, a really good story. And as you mentioned the other day, the the Rangers did not have a good offense in 2019, but Danny Santana was a, a good part of it. Yeah, 13 homers in 360 games before this season. 
and 28 in 130 this year. So in basically a third of his prior combined playing time, he hit double the home runs. And Santana was a fast player. He was a, a slap-hitting fast player before that. And uh, I wasn't paying that close of attention to Danny Santana or his his fantasy value. But if you'd asked me, I would have guessed at the end of this year that he had probably bulked up, that he was older. He, you know, probably was a slightly reimagined player and that that's where the power came from and that he was no longer fast. He also played primarily first base this year. He played everywhere, but he played more first base than anything else after being a, a center field shortstop with the twins. And so I would have imagined, well, Danny Santana is now strong and slow, but he also stole 21 bags and had six triples. He was one of the the faster players in the game again, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my suspicion was right. So uh, I just looked 2015 to 2018, 600 plate appearances. Danny Santana was the third worst hitter in baseball slightly worse than Jeff Mathis over that period of time. So Omar Infante had a 47 WRC plus Alexi Amarista had a 48 and Danny Santana had a 49. So that was not a terribly small sample. And he was a a sub replacement level player and one of the worst hitters in baseball. And then he came back to, to be a a slugger. (laughs) So I'm reading a a story about him at MLB.com from June, and people are talking about uh, just what kind of an amazing person he is. And he says uh, he's crediting confidence, which is always one of those explanations that, like, you, you want something more concrete than that. But it is understandable that confidence would help a player be better. Of course, you wonder then, well, why are you confident? But... It says, uh, I guess, in terms of like a mechanical change, he says Santana credits adjusting the movement of his hand on his swing for some of his success. So I I don't know exactly what that means, but he did some kind of mechanical tweak and also just uh, felt good about himself. And the Rangers liked him, so they trusted him and that made him believe in himself. And there we go, Danny Santana. I will note two things about his utility. I don't know the easiest way to query positional flexibility, but Danny Santana started, not just appeared in, but started at least six games at every position uh, on the diamond except for catcher. Is catcher on the diamond or is it just off the diamond? I was mm. I, I phrased it as on the diamond because I was trying to figure out a way to include the other seven positions. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's and, a tough one. Okay, well, anyway, he started at least six games at the other seven positions, which I would not be surprised if that's unprecedented. Hmm. Okay. Right? I mean, it may, it's it's like there are obviously players who could do that, but you usually if you have a, a certain, usually you end up at a position a little bit more than that, even if you're a u- utility, you get sort of your normal one. He played everywhere. Uh, so there's that. Also, Baseball Reference lists the positions you play as like almost like a line score. And so the end of the season it says position and so for Danny Santana it says three eight four seven nine six five because he played the most first base three and the second most center field that's eight and the third most second base and that feels like a very odd combination of of, a very odd sequence of those numbers and it would not Mm -hmm. surprise me also if Danny Santana is the first ever three eight four seven nine six five in history (laughs) okay like you play the most first base and then the second most center field, that's weird. Yeah, true. And then the third most second base, that <laughs> seems weird too. Mm-hmm. 
This is a John. This is a random number generator. This <laughs> yeah, order, I guess so. Yeah, the well, the Rangers had Isaiah Kiner Falefa, so That's he's true. he's the, the even stranger positional uh, combination. But yeah, yeah. That's, that's odd. All right. Next up is the Rays, and uh, we got a few Rays suggestions, and most of them were talk about Jiman Choi. And Jiman Choi, I, I think it's a case of uh, like you, you had to be there, I think, to fully appreciate what Jiman Choi means to Rays fans, because it's like it's the spectator experience of Jiman Choi, I think, more so than the stats. Because uh, if you look at the stats, you'd think, well, he's just, you know, a moderately above average hitter this year for a first baseman and not a, a you know, incredible defensive premium position guy. He's like kind of an average player, statistically speaking. But people love Jiman Choi, and I, I think some people were introduced to him in the postseason and, and started watching him regularly then and appreciated what he brings to a game because uh, Ben Clemens, for instance, at Fangraphs on October 9th wrote a post called The Joy of Jiman Choi, and he was writing a bit about the unusual postseason batting line that Choi had, which was good but weird. But what Ben said here is, Quote, what's great to me about Choi is his wonderful combination of giddiness and sheepishness combined with the instinctual, hey, I could do that feeling I get for an instant every time he does something good. That feeling is certainly misplaced. Choi might not look like a prototypical elite athlete, but looks can be deceiving. And then he continues lower in the post. You don't have to care about the aesthetics to think that Choi is good. The trap would suggest that Rays aren't in the business of caring about aesthetics, and they traded for Choi and made him an everyday starter on a 96-win team. He has good counting stats, good context-neutral stats, good stat cast stats. He's just good. But if you do care about how baseball looks, that's an extra mark in Choi's favor. He's an absolute delight to watch, regardless of what he's doing on the field. Would it be good for baseball if every player was Jiman Choi? Certainly not. But it works in small doses, and there's no better proof of that than Choi. And uh, he he mentions also, you can't watch him celebrate a win, shirt untucked and partially unbuttoned in stark contrast to his teammates, and not get a sense of, hey, that's what I'd look like out there. Hmm. So that's okay. Jiman Choi. Yeah. Interesting. Good. I'll enjoy him more next year. I don't. Uh, I, I. I hate to compare Rays players only to other Rays players, but something about him has always reminded me slightly of Dan Johnson. Uh huh. Okay. In the the way that uh, it's not the so, hair. It's not the hair, but it's bo- It's a combination of uh, well, f- first of all, Rays Rays first baseman. You know, uh, that's that's mm-hmm. part of it. It's the nomadicness of the career. It's the uh, productivity, the general productivity. But like you're never going to be a star at your position with those numbers, but you're also like always going to be someone that like if you're in the do up next inning, that, that <laughs> feels like an OK inning. Mm-hmm. And then a, the, the, the general sort of, uh, yeah, like you you just notice that they're in the screen, that they they <laughs> feel like somebody who is on the team that you like. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and it I can't get more specific than that. I I don't even I didn't even have this thought going yeah. really, uh, but that's kind of a little bit what he reminds me of. And you know, Dan Johnson, famous famous clutch Ray, <laughs> right? Yeah, and Choi when he came over, the the race traded Brad Miller for him in June 2018. 
And I think it always helps when a, a player comes over, joins your team, and you're not expecting a ton from him. And then he goes on a, a great hot streak to sort of introduce himself to the team. So in 2018, before the trade with the Brewers, he, you know, he had a 104 OPS plus in 12 games or something. Then with the Rays after the trade in 49 games, he had a 141 OPS plus. So he really announced himself. And then this year, he, he didn't hit quite that well, but he still hit fairly well and uh, was kind of a constant all season and Brad Miller by the way had a quite a good year too he uh, he played 79 games and only got 170 plate appearances so he was sort of a, a part-timer but when he did play and this was for Cleveland and then the Phillies he had a 125 OPS plus so both sides of that trade have sort of made good so here's why I think that I link. I, I think now this is why I link Choi and, and Johnson. Well, maybe it's not why. I had a theory, but maybe it's not right. In 2010, he was a Ray and he was good. And he had been just picked up off the scrap heap with little investment. And then for most of the decade, the Rays were very kind of like they always had these first basemen who you were underwhelmed by. Yeah. And it always felt like an easy position to upgrade but they invested so little in it because it was such an easy position to upgrade and it always ended up pretty bad that like yeah. they weren't they they weren't actually getting a lot of good production out of those players and so so they had Casey Kochman I guess I don't remember maybe he was good with the Rays but I don't remember it and they had James Loney for a while and they had uh I don't know I don't know if this theory is holding up at all but it feels like there was a period in the middle of the decade where we thought of the Rays always needing a first baseman but not right. really having one yeah and uh and then Choi is ends that Choi is good now mm -hmm. uh, this theory is uh is is actually ruined because uh, they also had Logan Morrison in 2017, who really ended that streak <laughs> yeah, when they true. went and got Logan Morrison, and he hit 38 home runs. And then the next year, they had CJ Crone, who hit 30 home runs. And so, uh, I don't know. Choi is <laughs> not of those the franchise guys left, so or, yeah. or the Rays <laughs> got rid of them. So yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to that was a thing a, though, like, or an organized theory, and it's not working. Wasn't it like DHs too? Maybe it was even more DHs. Than I think it might have been basement. even more D. Yeah, it might have even been more DHs. Mm -hmm. Maybe I, yeah, maybe I can retry this theory in seven minutes with <laughs> DHs. <laughs> All right. Okay, Red Sox. Uh, also pretty light on Red Sox suggestions, but one consistent one was just recognizing the season that Eduardo Rodriguez had. And it was a very fine season because he actually made every start this year. He got to the 200-inning mark, which he had never really approached before. He wasn't necessarily better on an inning-per-inning inning basis than he had been, say, the previous two years. He'd, he'd always been kind of good, but you kept waiting for him to have a full, healthy season. And he was on the IL each of those years. I think each of the previous three years, he had spent time on the injured list with lower body injuries. I think usually knee, but also hamstring and maybe ankle in there. So kept hurting himself and had never made more than 24 starts in a, a season before this one. But this one, he was totally healthy and he made all 34 starts and he actually went 19 and 6, which uh, like I pay no attention to win-loss record anymore, so I didn't even know that until just the second. But for him to go 19 and 6 on a, what, 84 win team, that's pretty impressive. I mean, Eduardo Rodriguez was sort of the staff ace, I guess, because... 
Price was uh, disappointing and Chris Sale was hurt and semi-disappointing, although in some ways he was good when he was healthy. But Eduardo Rodriguez was like one of the bright spots, if not the bright spot on that staff and uh, feels like we've been waiting a while for that. So that was his age 26 season and he made good on, on what everyone hoped for from him. Yeah, finished uh, sixth in Cy Young voting. Mm-hmm. And my recollection is that he had pretty lousy numbers through the first like month or two, good peripherals and lousy numbers. And now I'm looking at his game log. And yeah, it looks like that's basically true. So I'll just go from his first start through May 21st. He had a 5.43 ERA, but he had 10 strikeouts per nine and a little bit more than three strikeouts per walk. And then he uh, then he got it going. And so he had now even then he had I think he had crazy run support. I think he was a crazy run support guy all year. But uh, from that point on, must have been basically had the same peripherals, but had a 3.2 ERA. And so that might be part of why we didn't talk about him. His uh, his numbers did sort of sneak up through uh, through the summer. And mm-hmm. I remember when he finished sixth in Cy Young voting around that time, I was talking about him with with RJ and RJ was more in tune with how good Eduardo Rodriguez had been than I was. I was kind of demeaning him a mm-hmm. little bit because I had in my head a, a pitcher who was uh, slightly disappointing on a team that was very disappointing and and just had run support. And RJ pointed out that, no, in fact, Sam, he was a good pitcher. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess uh, in that same kind of category, Christian Vasquez had a, a really nice year too. And he's a player I've been rooting for for a while just because he was a framing specialist and he had some injuries and then he also just didn't hit at all sometimes. And this year he was uh, like a league average hitter, not just for a catcher, just for anyone. And he played 138 games and the great defense and that's a really strong season. So I was happy to to see him really blossom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Royals. So got a few things for the Royals. We did talk about Bubba Starling making the majors. A few people suggested that. Talked about that when he came up because that crossed off another box on the 2011 draft bingo card. So got that out of the way, but that was a cool story. Another one people suggested was Ian Kennedy turning into a, a relief ace, which was also fun. It's always nice when you get another data point to see what happens when a, a pitcher who has almost exclusively been a starter goes to the bullpen and transforms himself. And in Kennedy's case, it was quite a, a stark transformation. So he, I think he, he gained, what, a mile and a half, two miles per hour on his average fastball, something like that. And his numbers just uh, improved by a, a ton. So he had a you know sub three FIP just barely. He struck out like 10.4 guys per nine, whereas he had struck out 7.9 guys per nine as a starter the previous year. His walk rate went down. His ground ball rate went way up. He didn't allow many homers, and you know he had a, a 3.43 BABIP. So if anything, his his ERA, which was a solid 3.41, did not reflect how good he was. He was uh, really good, and doesn't happen that way for everyone. That's this is better than the typical transition from the rotation to the bullpen. But I'm always fascinated to see what will happen, whether the pitcher will actually look like a new pitcher, and why that is. I don't know 
particularly in Kennedy's case, why it was that he had such a successful transition. I don't know if it's that he got a bigger than average velocity boost, doesn't really seem like it, or whether it's more of a a mentality thing. He just liked being in the bullpen, or maybe it was a pitch usage thing. I don't know how his pitch selection changed. Maybe he was able to use a, a better pitch much more often, but always like that sort of science experiment. And in Kennedy's case, it worked out very well. Sort of surprising that he wasn't traded yes, at the it trade was, deadline yeah. and that we didn't hear more rumors about him. So I'm just looking. So Kennedy um, is signed for one more year right now. He's signed for one more year right now. His average annual salary is $14 million, which is a little high for a, a closer of Kennedy's level, but not high for a closer. And when you compare say what he was owed and what he was doing compared to what say Mark Melanson was owed and what he was doing it looks fairly comparable and Melanson was was successfully traded last fall but then uh so there was no rumor on MLB trade rumors for Kennedy in the 4 days leading up to the trade deadline so not only was he not traded but there wasn't even talk about him being traded mm-hmm. and there has been one rumor credited to uh, or or around Ian Kennedy in all the time since, and it was just a couple of days ago, uh, and it was kind of in a roundup of what the Royals might do this offseason. And this, I'm going to read this. This is kind of paraphrasing something from the Kansas City Star. The Royals continue to present the idea that they are happy with their core, an impression bolstered by the moon, sun, and stars type packages the Royals are demanding for players like Whit Merrifield, Danny Duffy, and Ian Kennedy. Mm. And uh, you could have convinced me that the reason that Ian Kennedy wasn't traded was that he was seen as having no value with his contract. And uh, you could convince me that he wasn't traded because the Royals are demanding two top 30 prospects for him. I'm not (laughs) sure which one it is. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you mentioned Danny Duffy, and I wanted to mention Danny Duffy, too, because Probably not a lot of people were following the Royals in September, in late September, but there was a great story about Danny Duffy in the Kansas City Star on September 20th, and Duffy just opened up about his history with anxiety and depression and panic disorder, and he told all of these stories about how hard it was for him to kind of live within a major league clubhouse and was very frank and and vulnerable about it which uh, you don't often hear from professional athletes obviously you know Zach Greinke is a is a Royals precedent for some of this but the stories that Duffy tells in in this article like he was just bullied throughout his career really not even just his professional career but like in high school even earlier than that and when he got to his first Royals spring training so he's in his early 20s and he was talking about how exciting he was to to be there in big league camp for the first time and there was this group of five pitchers he doesn't specify who they were but they just picked on him mercilessly like you know it sounds like worse and more mean-spirited than even the typical traditional rookie hazing, which is bad enough. But Duffy, given his history, you know, probably reacted more strongly even to that. And it's just, it sounds cruel what they did to him. And he was so miserable that he quit baseball for a while. He just went away. He told the Royals he was done, as Granky did, of course. And he didn't 
say why, at least publicly, and he didn't even tell the royals at that time. He kind of kept it private and said it was uh, something to do with his family, maybe, but uh, it was because of this, because he was having panic attacks just because it was so miserable to be in that environment. You know, he says within three days of his showing up at at spring training, he felt mentally broken. Teammates needled his every move, his every word. Each night during hours-long phone conversations with his mother, Duffy told her he wasn't cut out for this. He wanted to come home. He started showing up at the park really early, hoping that he could just avoid these pitchers who were picking on them. But that didn't work. And so uh, eventually he had to, to leave and, you know, he went into therapy and he's gotten treatment for this. And now he copes with it to some extent by taking very long walks. I know you take long walks, but these are, I think, even longer walks than than you take. So he says uh, the first, I think, spring training when he went back to the Royals after this ordeal, he just left at like uh, four o'clock. He left his hotel and started walking and he walked for 14 hours and he didn't go back until like 630 the next morning having walked a marathon essentially. And he he still takes very long walks as sort of a a stress reliever. So anyway, it's a a really good article and uh, I applaud him for being so open about it because he says that like having this out there and and feeling vulnerable because people know this about him might be an even greater source of anxiety for him. But he said that he kind of wanted to put it out there for other players who might be experiencing the same thing. And I don't know that other players have because so, so few professional athletes will talk about it. So really nice story. Yeah. Yeah. He talked about the walking uh, in 2018 and it was really dispiriting because just that caused a bunch of a, a, a lot of like kind of public reaction about him being odd mm-hmm. and rather than him having a perfectly healthy hobby yeah uh and uh it's just it's it's tough it's tough to to be in public i mean you just cannot count on the generosity of the public um and um so yeah keep 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 that in mind with mm-hmm. players yep all right tigers we we had to had to dig here to get a good tiger story but this is something that i wasn't really aware of i i knew that spencer turnbull had had a, a pretty good season at least uh, by tigers standards uh, tigers were were terrible obviously this year got themselves the the first pick i guess in next year's draft because of it but they were more terrible on the offensive side. The pitching staff was was not quite so terrible, but because the offense was so horrendous, worst offense in baseball, pitchers didn't get a lot of run support. And Spencer Turnbull had a three and seventeen win loss record. He led the major leagues in losses, and yet he was a pretty good pitcher. He had a, a sub four FIP. He had a one hundred four ERA plus. This was in thirty starts. Uh, he was good. He struck out almost a batter per inning. Pretty good season for Spencer Turnbull, but this is uh, such a, a terrible win-loss record, which, again, just uh, reminds us all why we don't really pay attention to win-loss record anymore. But I was kind of curious about where Spencer Turnbull's season ranks among seasons with a winning percentage this bad, and the answer is at the top. It is the the best season ever for someone who had a, a winning percentage this terrible and spent time in the starting rotation because obviously you're in the bullpen you can have a an 0-4 season or whatever and it, it doesn't mean anything but Spencer Turnbull had a 2.9 fan graphs war this year which is quite good so the 
best season by any other pitcher who had any number of starts was uh, just slightly worse at 2.8. That was another Tigers pitcher, Art Hudeman, in 1948. But Art, he pitched in 43 games and started 20 of them. So he was in the bullpen a lot of the time. So to find another pitcher who had a winning percentage as low as Spencer Turnbull's and spent the entire season in the starting rotation... You've gotta you gotta look well well down the list, but not very far from Spencer Turnbull because it was Jordan Zimmerman of the 2019 Tigers yeah. who who went one and thirteen and had himself a 1.3 WAR season, and that was in 23 games and 23 starts. So to find the non 2019 Tigers pitcher who spent the whole season in the rotation or started exclusively and had a winning percentage that's terrible. It is Ross Ollendorf for the 2010 Pirates who went 1 and 11 that year with a 1.1 Fangraphs war season. So this was a historically great season with a historically terrible record for Spencer Turnbull. Yeah, and I it wasn't just the I don't think it was just the run support either. A part of it was the the defense. So, uh if you just look at their top 4 starters, you have Zimmerman who was the opening day starter, and then you have Daniel Norris, Spencer Turnbull, and and Matthew Boyd who were all quite good. All of them had ERA pluses that were over 100, but also they had a FIPS, I guess Norris's FIP and ERA were about the same, but the other two had FIPS that were better than their ERAs. Zimmerman had a, a terrible ERA, but um, an, a league average FIP. And so if you group them all together, I, I, I'm just eyeballing this. I don't know if this is right, but I think it's pretty close. I think that you would have like a, a FIP minus that's probably in like the low 90s or so for those four collectively, which is better than average, which is pretty good. So there's that. There's the defense behind them. But then even if you just look at their their runs allowed, which are worse because they allowed more runs than their FIP would have suggested, and Zimmerman in particular was a disaster, those four had a combined ERA of five, which doesn't seem very good, but in this era in the American League, uh, it's pretty close to league average. I would guess that it's an ERA plus of of like 98 or so. So mm-hmm. let's just assume it's 98 or so, basically league average. And those four starters who were basically league average went 16 and 55. Oof. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. Mm-mm. The Tigers did also have uh, another player who was with them, I guess, pretty much all year. He he threw 79 innings and 46 games out of the bullpen. Nick Ramirez, who is a, a left-handed pitcher, and he was a former hitter, former Tigers prospect as a first baseman, I believe, or initially, I guess he was a Brewers prospect, really. He was drafted by the Brewers in the fourth round of the 2011 draft, and he just uh, didn't hit very well. And then he converted to pitching, I guess in 2017 was when he started pitching, and he made it to the big leagues with the Tigers in 2019, and he was pretty good and spent all season with them. So, Nice positional conversion story is always is always good, too. I did not realize that Trevor Rosenthal was a Tiger uh, after the Nationals let him go. The Tigers picked him up. And, of course, the Tigers, when they picked him up, were probably 45 games under 500 already. <laughs> and Rosenthal is a free agent this year. He uh, would have been no matter what because this was his sixth year of Major League Service time. And so at the very best, the Tigers were picking him up for two and a half months. But it was 16 days before the trade deadline. 
And I wonder, do you think they picked him up because they thought, ah, what the heck, we need arms. Maybe he'll, you know, pitch 17 innings for us and then the season will be over and we can go on our boat. Or do you think that they picked him up with 16 days until the trade deadline thinking that there is a genuine chance that if they turned him around, <laughs> that his velocity and name name recognition and, and history would actually make him tradable with 16 good days. And keep in mind, the Nationals had released him with an ERA of 22.74 and 15 walks in six innings against five strikeouts. So he had gone through, you know, one of the worst stretches that a pitcher could possibly fear. But do you think that Trevor Rosenthal, 16 days of Trevor Rosenthal would make him um, would make him a tradable? I think potentially, yeah. And it it didn't seem like the Tigers made a lot of moves that were like, let's pick up this guy because it might make us a tiny bit better. Like, let's pick up this veteran player. They they didn't do that, really. They they pretty much tanked and they got the number one pick. So I would think just based on that, based on the fact that they didn't try to bring in recognizable players just to be a little bit more respectable, maybe they did think that that was a speculative thing. Might as well give it a shot, I guess. <laughs> what else were, were they doing at the time? Mm-hmm. All right. Twins. So you mentioned Mitch Garver already in this episode, and many of the suggestions we got were to talk about Mitch Garver. We did at some point this year. We probably didn't talk enough about Mitch Garver because he really had an incredible season, but I know that we mentioned it because he hit like Mike Piazza and he just remade himself and he went to Alex Bregman's personal hitting coach and he just changed his swing and he also had a a framing coach, catching coach with the Twins who helped him become a good framer and he was just unbelievable. It was uh, one of the best stories of the Twins season and one of the best player turnaround rounds just how good he got and how much better and how quickly that's uh it's it's a cool story but we did touch on that at least so i think most of the suggestions that we got were to talk about luis arise and i think we gave short shrift to luis arise probably because we gave such long shrift to the other non-strikeout Venezuelan multi-position player on the Twins roster. Williams Estadio just didn't leave a, a lot of room in our hearts for another player like that, I suppose. But Luis Rise is, frankly, a, a better version of Williams Estadio. He's uh, maybe not quite so extreme when it comes to the strikeouts and the walks. Certainly he does walk, but he is similar in the sense that he played a ton of positions and he is really good at, at getting the bat on the ball. He was a fun player with a very sort of mature offensive approach. People are just very impressed by Luis Rise, and he hurt himself. He sprained his ankle just in late September, like was it the last game of the season or just about? And I know that was kind of a blow to the Twins. He did make the playoff roster and sort of taped up his ankle and tried to play on it, but he he didn't look like he should be playing, really. Didn't look like he was at full strength. If you look at the Fangraphs depth charts projections for 2020 and you sort by the lowest strikeout rate, the Twins have two of the three, the top three or bottom three, depending on how you sort. So Williams Estadio projected for a 6.5% strikeout rate, Luis Arise for an 8.5% strikeout rate, and Nick Madrigal 
whom Meg and I spoke about recently. He is projected for the lowest strikeout rate in baseball with the Twins 5.7%. So everyone fell in love with Nick Madrigal. But point is, Twins have uh, two of these guys, except that Arise is really good. And he had a, a 123 OPS plus in 92 games. He was sixth in Rookie of the Year voting. Everyone loved him. Everyone was impressed by him. And he is uh, only 22 years old. So he is actually probably a a promising player who will be the Twins utility player of the present and future. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That, and it was, this was passed along with a link to a plate appearance that I, that I think we probably both wish that we had known about in real time. Maybe you did, but we, we might've, we might have raced to write about it at the time. It was a situation where a rise was brought into a game in an 0-2 count because, mm-hmm. what, the batter had been injured or ejected? Yeah, this was in July, and it was Jonathan Scope heard his oblique swinging. And so, yeah, there was an 0-2 pitch against Edwin Diaz, and Arise came in as a pinch hitter. So 0-2 against Edwin Diaz, who, granted, did not have a good season, but he certainly struck out a lot of guys. And when you're down 0-2 and you have the pinch hit penalty and you're coming if, coming in cold off the bench against a guy who throws 100, that is a, a pretty tough assignment. And yes, so according to this article, TwinCities.com, Arias fouled off three straight pitches, then he took two straight balls, then he fouled off a high fastball, then he took an inside slider for a ball to get a full count, and then he fouled off another slider and then took a, a fastball outside to draw a walk. And uh, he pirouetted toward the Twins' dugout and shouted toward his teammates who responded with a massive roar of their own, which uh, you probably wouldn't hear a massive roar <laughs> greeting a walk in a just a July game all that often. But this was really impressive, and everyone was raving about it. So Rocco Baldelli said, I don't know how many people in the entire world could have the at-bat he had last night. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic here. There are only few people out there that have the skill and the general feel in the batter's box and the ability to do that. So that is uh, very high praise. Yeah, and he doesn't strike out, as you noted, but he does walk, which is a rare combination. And it's particularly, it's an extremely rare combination if you don't have a ton of power. Some batters, when they reach their kind of their peak, they have a combination of plate discipline and pitchers fearing them that allows them to draw a lot of walks. And uh, Arise doesn't have that. He hit four home runs this year in a year where... Hans Alberto hit 12, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah. uh, and yet he struck out 29 times and walked 36. That's a 10% walk rate. And that is, that's a very rare, it's a very rare ratio. Mm-hmm. You, you hardly yeah. ever see that. Yeah. The headline of this uh, article about that plate appearance says, with one plate appearance, Twins rookie Luis Arise proves future is bright. And that got me thinking about what you can do in one plate appearance to prove that your future is bright. Because usually we talk about that with pitchers, like the idea of signature significance, that if a pitcher comes in and he has one start where he strikes out 10 and doesn't walk anyone or something, maybe that one start is enough to tell you something about his career, which I don't know if that's actually true or certainly not universally true. But you hear that about pitcher outings and obviously if a pitcher throws one pitch and it's 100 miles per hour or something then he's proved that the future could be bright at least so to have one plate appearance that ends in a walk prove that your future is bright 
I wonder if that's actually true or how often that is true. Because like if you end your plate appearance with uh, a ball that you hit 115 miles per hour and it goes uh, 450 feet or something, then maybe you've proved that your future is bright. I think Rob Arthur has written before about how just one really hard hit ball can tell you a lot about a player. But one walk, I wonder if that's true. It's probably true that there are certain types of players who never have a plate appearance like this one plate appearance that he had. But even like a free swinger who doesn't make contact all that often could have a single plate appearance where he did something like this. So maybe it's not really just this one plate appearance because as Baldelli also said, he's had that at bat against many other pitchers and either gotten a hit or a walk or hit a ball on the barrel or done something else positive. It's not surprising because he's done it before. So They they should put him into every game when <laughs> someone falls behind 0-2. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, yeah, it's a sort of no fun to say it, but I agree with you that there's nothing that significant about. I mean, it, he fouled off some pitches when like every batter fouls off like thirty percent of the pitches that they swing at, mm-hmm. and he took some pitches, and almost every batter takes roughly half at least of the balls or much more of the balls that are out of the strike zone against him. So if you just do the math, he saw what did he see seven pitches after the two that. He was he was granted the O2. He saw seven more, six more. So he had like, uh, yeah, I mean, but the part of the big part of the reason that this uh, plate appearance lasted as long as it did was that he did not hit a ball fair for a double. <laughs> yeah. So that said, it is a great, a great at bat. He was not one of the twins top 10 prospects going into the season. He did not play for the twins for almost half the season. And he ended up tying vladimir guerrero jr in rookie of the year voting Uh with a higher war per per game and so uh that was a tremendous turnaround yeah can i do a quick mitch garver fun fact Mm -hmm. all right i'm gonna read you a list of names those names are sammy sosa roger maris babe ruth mark mcguire barry bonds javi lopez jd martinez matt williams hank aaron those are the only players in history who have ever had a season with a higher home run rate than Mitch Garver. Wow. All right. Good one. In at least 300, in at least two, I'll say in at least 250 mm-hmm. played appearances. Yeah. <laughs> I could have said 350, but I went lower <laughs> to make it sound slightly better. And then I, I explained the process to <laughs> to undercut my integrity. All right, White Sox. So this suggestion comes from a listener Facebook group member named Jerome, who says, I think this was widely underappreciated. Loy Jimenez, who was traded from the Cubs, hit a pinch hit home run in his first at bat against the Cubs in spring training and said he was waiting for that moment to get revenge ever since the trade. Then in his first game at Wrigley, he hits the game winning home run. It's just about the most exciting thing that can happen for a 72-win team. Star prospect hits game-winning homer on the road in his first game against his former team, the Crosstown Rival. When he came up to bat late in the game, everyone was either anticipating or dreading smacking one out. He did it on a broken bat, too. Less cool in 2019, but whatever. And that's uh, that's nice. That's the kind of story that you 
know about a team if you follow it every day and you're a fan of it and you live in that city and you might not know as a, a national person when you certainly know about Eloy Jimenez, but you might not know about his his vow to get vengeance against the Cubs. I don't know if you can get vengeance in a spring training game. I'm not sure you can get revenge for a trade. I'm not sure you can really make much of an impact at all in a spring training game, but then he did it in uh, his first game against them in the regular season. So yeah, that's a, a pretty cool crosstown story. Yeah, it was um, it was something that I just knew for a fact when I was a kid that players who got traded by a team were better against that team because they were so mad. <laughs> it was just uh-huh. known. that you, you knew that, certainly. <laughs> yeah, sure. I've never seen a study on it, but... You I know. haven't either. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember I my recollection is that Kevin Mitchell was the the prototype for this theory because he hit so well against the Padres and maybe also the Mets. Mm-hmm. Checking now. Let's see. I mean, the problem is that Kevin Mitchell played for so long after that and then had so many former teams that this is not going to be that <laughs> revealing. But for what it's worth, against the Padres, 89 games, 1,001 OPS. Against the Mets, 70 games, 927 OPS. Again, I don't know. But he had a career OPS of 880, so he did much better against the Padres. It's yeah. a dumb, dumb, uh, <laughs> dumb tangent to have gone on. Would you see? He was traded from the Cubs in the Jose Quintana trade. Yeah. So, so that wasn't like a. It wasn't like a, it wasn't a you. challenge, right? No, it wasn't a challenge. It was trade. like, hey, this is a great prospect, and we've got to give up a great prospect to get a really good pitcher because we need yeah. a really good pitcher. So if I were Jimenez, I don't, I don't think I would hold a grudge and say they didn't believe in me they just uh you know they they had to get this other guy which but i mean this is how players motivate themselves so it's fine yeah i i think it would be different if he had been in like say triple a at the time and he could have said well why go get a new pitcher when you could call me up right now i can Mm. make the team better right now but he was in high A. It was clearly just one of those trades. And they had traded Glaber Torres and they like not that far before that. And they were trading Dylan Cease in the very same trade. And so this was a team that was trading all its top prospects. By the way, I wanted to say one last thing about Arise. I just mm-hmm. forgot. I wrote an article last offseason about the most impressive plate appearance of the 2018 season. And it was when Starlin Castro fell behind 0-2 against Josh Hader and then homered on, I think, the 14th pitch of the at-bat or something like that. And Starlin Castro like, is definitely not—on uh, the one hand, Starlin Castro is definitely not the one player that you'd say has that skill set. Like, he, he is—there's nothing notable about Starlin Castro. He's like an average hitter in every respect. And mm-hmm. so it was an extremely special at-bat, and it didn't say anything particularly special about him. On the other hand, if uh, Luis Arise came up and ha- it was like his 20th game in, in the majors as a 22-year-old, and you said— this plate appearance shows that he's going to be as good as Starlin Castro. I think everybody would go awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Eloy Jimenez's 2020 because he kind of turned it on as the season went on. I, I do these top 10 things. I, I go on the MLB network to do these top 10 positional rankings every offseason with Mike Petriello and Vince Gennaro. We're recording in uh, just a few weeks, the, the 2020 ones. And I think both Mike and I had Eloy Jimenez and Vlad Guerrero Jr. on top 10 lists heading into the 2019 season. I don't remember which positions they were eligible at, but we were so confident in them. And it's pretty rare to, before a player even makes his major league debut, to say, this is right now, this season, 
one of the 10 best players at that position. You have to have a lot of faith in a player to think that he will just walk into the big leagues and from day one be one of the 10 best players at his position. And we both thought highly enough of, of Vlad and, and Eloy Jimenez to put them on our lists. And incorrectly, I guess, as it turned out, because they, they had some growing pains and they did not have great seasons. And Jimenez hurt himself, I think, also when he was really heating up. But even so, he had a, a first half WRC plus of 105, second half of 128. And Vlad, of course, hit better as the season went on, too. He uh, got up to a, a 112 in the second half as after a 97 in the first half. So looking forward to seeing full seasons of those guys. And maybe they will have the seasons in 2020 that we hoped and thought they would have in 2019. Mm-hmm. All right. And the last team is the Yankees. How could there be anything we didn't talk about with the Yankees this year? We talked about them a ton. There wasn't much that people suggested, but Gabe pointed out, and I think uh, maybe Martin did also, that the Yankees lost each of their first three home series, and those series were against the Orioles, Tigers, and White Sox, and then they never lost another home series the rest of the season. Wow. I guess until their uh, their final playoff series, which they, they did lose, but still— it's pretty impressive, A, that they that they didn't lose one all season long after April and that they the three they did were all the first three and against uh, three of the worst teams in the league, Orioles, Tigers, and White Sox. It's uh, hmm. some start to the season. Good one. Yeah. Also wanted to, to mention that uh, on Star Wars Day, May 4th, someone else suggested that we link to Cece Sabathia, who dressed up as Yoda, and it's... Uh, he really went for it. He had the the ears and the the skin paint and the gloves with the the three fingers and the Jedi robes. And it's like uh, before Baby Yoda, there was Sabathi Yoda, and it's like the opposite. It's like a six eight guy or whatever he is with a, a Yoda costume. It's it's endearing, I guess, but also sort of disturbing. But he was greeting people going into Yankee Stadium as Yoda and uh, signing autographs and kissing babies or whatever, really went for it. Got the, the whole mask, the bald head, the wrinkled green face paint. It's uh, it's quite a sight. So I'll link to that for people who missed it. That follows a, that, that, I guess maybe that establishes a tradition because 20 years ago, about 20 years ago, 20 years ago, yeah, 20 years ago. I think it was 20 years ago. Hang on, I'm checking the date. 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 years ago. Pedro Martinez wore a, a full Yoda uh, mask huh. in the dugout of, the, of a Red Sox right, game. That's right. Okay. Uh, yeah. For some reason. I don't know why. And it wasn't <laughs> for May the 4th. Uh, I guess it, I don't know why. Okay. All right. Uh, it was, it was, uh, no, I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why he did it. In fact, I'm reading now. We may never know why he did it. Okay. I, just I don't read want that, to know so. why. Yeah. Mm. I'm happy not knowing. <laughs> All right. So that is the end of this exercise. It was fun. I like doing these things. Thanks for all the suggestions of stories. We should, you know, we should really do this mid-season. Yeah. There's, yeah, probably. That, that like one in July, maybe one at the break. Yeah. Good idea. All right. That will do it for today and for this week. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. 
following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Jay, Jesse Dubas, Matthew Hanzis, Luis Torres, and Nate Gilman. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions coming for me and Meg and Sam via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and all three of us will be back to talk to you early next week. Bye.